This episode is brought to you in part thanks to some of our amazing partners like LMNT. LMNT makes the best electrolyte product on the market. In fact, I've actually started drinking my LMNT each and every morning before I have coffee so as to optimize my circadian biology, make sure that I'm hydrated, and make sure that I'm getting ahead on my water intake throughout the day and not reliant on stimulants, but instead being somebody who's reliant on hydration and the proper balance of minerals and electrolytes. If you want to feel your best all day, mentally and physically, it's imperative that you stay hydrated. LMNT provides a balanced ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to support brain and body hydration. This combination of electrolytes improves health, performance, body and brain performance, mind you, helps to reduce cramps and soreness and get you more hydrated. There's no sugar, Elementia is sweetened with stevia. It's perfect for exercise and perfect for the sauna because the flavors are natural, tasty, delicious, and not overpowering. And if you're like me, you'll use them multiple times a day across your training sessions to get hydrated early to replenish after sauna use. And again, it's not just me. LMNT is the official sports drink of Team USA weightlifting, and it's used by athletes in the NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, as well as athletes like you and I looking to take your fitness to the next level. My favorite flavors are definitely the raspberry and citrus. When I put a box together, I try to load up on raspberry and citrus. And when you put your box together, you can get a free sample pack containing all of Element's amazing flavors like mango chili, citrus, raspberry, orange, and more. To get access to this free gift with purchase, scroll down to the show notes and check out using the special link for Dynamic Dialogue listeners. This episode is brought to you in special part thanks to our awesome partners over at Ice Barrel. If you're like me, you want to get the absolute most you can out of your fitness and out of what it is that you're doing in life. I like to make sure that I'm recovering well and prepped for hard workouts. I like to make sure that my cognition is sharp, and I like to make sure that I'm doing what I can to maintain my long-term health. And cold water immersion is a phenomenal tool I use and have used for a while to help me do this. Cold water immersion or taking ice baths is a great way to improve your recovery and performance. Just a few short sessions a week can really make a difference in how you recover. It can increase and improve your heart rate variability. It can enhance performance. It improves mood and brain function. It also provides an awesome boost of energy and focus because when you hop in an ice bath and you get this amazing vasoconstriction effect and your body starts releasing epinephrine and norepinephrine, it kind of lets you re-enter the world awake, energized, excited, and enthused. And I would much rather take an ice bath in the mid-afternoon, especially if I had a hard training session in the morning, than consume more caffeine. Ice Barrel allows me to do this in a super sleek, aesthetically pleasing packaging. It's a beautiful barrel that comes with a matching lid for keeping the ice cold and water inside clean, a nice step-up stool, a cover. It's portable and durable, and it comes in a beautiful matte black and a gorgeous tan. I have the matte black out on my patio, and I absolutely love the the way it looks with the fencing I have around the yard, but you can put this inside, outside, on the front porch, on the back porch, in the side yard. It's quite portable. It's very durable. Like I said, the design is super, super sleek, and it's very easy to drain to make sure that you are only getting in to cold, clean water designed to help you improve your performance, improve your recovery, enhance the way your brain feels and functions throughout the day. This is an amazing one-time cost tool that once you have it, you use it a couple times a week. It is one of the best investments 
investments you can make in your health. And again, if you want to improve your cognition and performance and you have those midday lulls or you want to be more present for your family or for your friends when you get off of work and you don't want to caffeinate, temperature modulation like ice baths or cold exposure or sauna, heat exposure can be really valuable for increasing that subjective sense of well-being and bringing you back to a place of alertness in a really chaotic world. It's also great for just cultivating resilience. I find I'm much tougher. Again, this is a more anecdotal thing, but I find that I am much tougher, ready to face the day's tasks when I am consistently exposing myself to the elements. Call it bromeopathy, call it anecdote, but I will tell you one thing is for sure, cold water immersion has made a huge difference for my health and well-being in just a few short sessions a week. An ice barrel is the sleekest, best looking, cleanest, and most affordable way to do it reliably. You can head over to icebarrel.com slash Danny to take advantage of their 100% satisfaction guaranteed with again, a 30 day money back guarantee and save 125 bucks on your ice barrel using the promo code Danny. So again, icebarrel.com slash Danny and check out using the promo code Danny to save 125 bucks. This podcast has some awesome partners, and one of my favorite, of course, is Legion Athletics. Legion is my go-to supplement manufacturer for what I like to call my big rock supplements. This would be my protein powder, my pre-training formula, my post-training formula and creatine, and my kind of ancillary vitamins and micronutrient protection. So why do I like Legion so much? What sets them apart? It's quite simple. Legion uses all natural ingredients. All the formulas include natural coloring and natural sweeteners. No artificial sweeteners, just stevia. And every single formulation, be it a pre-workout or a vitamin, contains clinically effective dosages of ingredients shown to work in humans in clinical research supported by robust trials. No filler, just legit ingredients in each and every formulation proven to work. The whey protein isolate is so light. It's fantastic. It mixes in water. It tastes amazing. And I drink it every day, even as somebody who's lacking lactose intolerant. That's just how high quality this whey protein is. And it's sourced from Irish dairy cows that are raised well, eat their natural diet and packaged in climate friendly packaging. I love their plant protein too. For those of you who like something that's a little on the thicker side and you aren't a fan of animal products. Also, I love Legion's pre-workout, but specifically the pre-workout that does not contain caffeine. That would be their stim-free pulse. I'm a huge, huge fan of beta alanine and L-citrulline, but I don't like taking in wildly high amounts of caffeine. So if you are somebody who likes pre-workout with caffeine, you can try pulse. Or if you like it without caffeine, because you maybe want to enjoy your morning coffee or monitor your caffeine consumption, try the pulse stim-free. My favorite flavors there for sure are the new grape and the amazing, amazing tropical punch. As for my creatine, I get that from Legion's Recharge, five grams each and every day. I take it on the days I train as well as the days I do not because Recharge also contains L-carnitine, which can help with promoting muscle recovery and decreasing soreness, as well as some ingredients to help with creatine utilization. And of course, my favorite supplements for my ancillary micronutrient health are Legion's Multivitamin and Legion's Greens Powder. Not only do these two products contain a ton of high quality vitamins and minerals, they also contain unique adaptogens like KSM 66 ashwagandha and reishi mushroom, which I like to take each and every day to promote my health. If you want to cover all your bases with a high quality protein, creatine, post-workout, or the ancillary micronutrient health stuff like greens powders and multivitamin, I encourage you to go over to legionathletics.com and check out using the promo code Danny. That'll save you 20% on your first order and 
you'll rack up points that you can use the same way as cash every time you use the code and you'll also be supporting the show. Welcome back guys to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue podcast. In this episode, I'm sitting down with my good friend, Dr. Mike Isratel, and we're discussing all things training and hypertrophy. This is a re-air of an episode from 2022, early 2022, where Dr. Mike and I sat down and discussed all things hypertrophy, muscle growth, what you should be going for in the gym, what should you be feeling, what sensations should be kind of coming from your training, what are the technical things you need to be on the lookout for. This is a really practical and effective look at what it takes to build muscle, what your sessions by and large should look and feel like. So I think you guys will love this if you're interested in muscle growth. It's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. Uh, We have some fun kind of off the cuff jokes too. So this will be a good one. Sit back and enjoy. All right, guys. So I am here with Dr. Mike Isratel of Renaissance Periodization. For many years now, Mike has been one of the few people, few scientific minds that I go to for just kind of succinct explanation of how a muscle grows. There's a lot of noise in this space. There's a lot of people who uh, communicate how to grow muscle, I think, well, but I do think Mike is world-class, one of the best. So today I'm excited to talk to Mike about muscle growth, all the different variables that can impact muscle growth and how you can kind of weave that into your training and what you're currently doing. So Mike, welcome in. How are you, man? Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's awesome to be on, and I hope I hope I don't let you down with all that very nice introducing that you just. Oh, uh, d- dude, dude, you you could never. I'm I'm excited we're getting the chance to talk. And uh, like I said, there's a lot of people who who really tout and speak with absolutes that they know how to build muscle, and I think you're one of the guys who really does. And w- one thing that's been particularly fascinating to me recently is finding ways people like you and I who like to bodybuild. I bodybuild recreationally, you bodybuild professionally, but we take this stuff seriously. How can we communicate these concepts to the general population? How can we succinctly describe what it is that we do to build muscle? And I think that might be like the best jumping off point, which is when you're training to develop muscle, what are you really looking for? What should your training look like from an effort standpoint? That's a good question. I think we can uh, approach it from a pretty simple framework of ideas and then generally if if you're a person and if after i say all these ideas you're listening and you say well that actually i already knew all that generally and that makes a lot of sense i wanted more specifics you know shameless plug you just type in my last name in youtube or just go to renaissance Periodization youtube channel and just go to all the older videos we have and by now we've addressed damn near everything up to a pretty complex level we have books linked and everything uh, that are even more complicated. So as I, I promise, uh, even though I'll be speaking in insanely simplistic generalities, there's an unbelievable amount of detail to be discovered. It's kind of like, you know, if someone sh- sh- sort of draws what a leaf looks like and it's like, well, that's nice. It looks like my hand or something. And they're like, that's all you know about leaves, but you're talking to a botanist. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I can go much further. It is going to be very annoying. And it will talk about cell membranes and everyone's going to get bored to tears. So basically here's the deal growing muscle is conceptually a matter of turning on the molecular machines in your muscles that grow muscle so the real question is sort of twofold one when we turn them on how long do they turn on for because they turn on for some time they grow some muscle and then turn off or they turn down and so that answers the question potentially of like how often do we want to turn these machines on and thus how often do we train and then also what are the stimulators 
what are the things in the gym that we can do that turn these machines on? Then, of course, on the nutrition recovery side, how do we make sure these machines have plenty of power, or oil, or whatever the hell else machines use uh, in order to have their task actually accomplished, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, you could have like buy a really cool new drill and you hit the on switch and it doesn't do anything. You're like, right, batteries. Fuck, I forgot. So is it okay if I swear every now and again? or do you? Do you oh, dude, that? let it rip. I love it. I love it. And I can also do a clean podcast. I'm a normal person, I swear <laughs> to God. No. So first question is, how do we stimulate muscle growth? And that's gender, generally from training. Mm -hmm. We have to meet a few conditions. And, and not, they're not so complicated. First is, you know, you have to do a hard set, mm -hmm. at least one. And that set is of uh, some kind of uh, exercise that targets the muscle group, that uses it, that pushes that muscle close to its failure point. Something like three reps or two reps or one rep or zero reps away from where the muscle just can't move anymore. It goes, mm -hmm. hey, I'm done. And so one set like that with a weight that challenges you somewhere between five reps and 30 reps into the set. Okay. So that's one set. And how many sets of those do you need to have a good workout? And it's very generally, the answer is like anywhere between three and 10 sets. Mm -hmm. So like maybe something like six or seven sets for many people per muscle per session is real good. So someone mm -hmm. can ask the question of well, how many sets do I need to do that are close to failure between five and 30 reps each of chest exercises in order sure. to get a bigger chest? I say any one time you go to the gym, maybe like somewhere between three and 10, maybe like six or seven. Right? Yeah. And that's like a pretty decent answer. Now, there's tons of variation, blah, 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 but that's just super, super basic. Mm -hmm. And then the next question is, okay, given that I'm training my muscle groups and checking off the boxes, and let's say one day I train all my lower body, the next day I train all my upper body, getting you know roughly three to 10 sets for each one of the major muscle groups. How often do I have to come back to the gym in order to start that process again? Because the muscle growth is stimulated and that's really great. How often do I need to re-stimulate? And the answer is, oh, gee, you know, every two to four days, mm -hmm. which translates to training. Most muscle groups can get really, really great results being trained two to four times per week. Now, if you happen to be very big and very strong and very male, that's probably closer to two <laughs> times a week in many cases. And, and with muscles that are also big and strong. And I suppose muscles individually have gender. Yeah, like my quads are boys, but my glutes are definitely girls. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think no that works. doubt about it. But uh, <laughs> so in any case, so there's there's that. But you know, higher frequencies tend to benefit people that are a little bit smaller, a little bit not so advanced uh, in their mm -hmm. strength and their progression, and female. So if you are female and you weigh 115 pounds and you just started lifting, you know, a year ago, you may be able to hit every single muscle group in your body like four times per week. Yeah. And the real way to tell is it's actually, again, quite simple. Are you sore in that muscle when you try to train it again? If you are, you're training it too soon. And, or are you really tired? Because sometimes the muscle's not sore. There's no, you touch it and it feels fine, but you try to lift your normal weights and you're like, Ugh, how did yeah. I ever do this? Something is missing. You need to take more time. And then mm -hmm. lastly, we say, okay, I guess we kind of introduced the idea of recovery there because clearly we need more time. Sure. But if I want to train three days a week, is there any way I can speed up recovery so that I do recover for each one of those sessions and can justify three days a week? And the answer is eat a diet, you know, four to seven meals per day, rich in complete protein sources, plenty of carbs and fats on top. When you're gaining muscle, preferably a few more calories than it takes to stabilize your weight. You want to gain weight because, you know, like, your muscles are made of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> what is it? I think J.M. J.M. Blakely might have had this quote of like, you know, your body is not built on hopes and dreams. It, it's built in matter, <laughs> the actual yeah. stuff. 
So we'll we'll tangent. You and I plan to tangent off on that. Yeah, I, I think that'd be a really good segue offenders. at some point to discuss yes. the caloric yep. requirements for actually yes. accreting muscle tissue, which I, yes. I I I really respect and I love where people are coming from when they say, you know what, muscle growth is great, but I'd like to accomplish that with absolutely zero fat gain and I'm willing to do yes. whatever it takes. And it's like, okay, yes. but it's probably not going to happen. Well, whatever it takes, <laughs> depending on what you mean by that could happen at great expense. But, yes. uh, so in any case, you know, you eat well-rounded diet, multiple high protein meals per day, enough calories to grow, to add a little bit of tissue over the course of several months at a time, nutritious foods, generally a bit of junk is totally fine. And then you sleep like, you know, however much sleep makes you not tired. And that's actually a little gem I'd like to drop into the conversation. It's not so related. Always get constant perseverative questions, which is understandable, of course, by people just pouring over mounds of data, mounds of sleep studies, and trying to figure out how many hours do I need to sleep per night? We get a really easy answer for you. Towards, you know, the middle of the day, are your eyes like dry and hurt? And you're like, okay, if I get a pillow, I'll pass out forever. Yeah. That's the answer. You need more sleep at night. If during the middle of the day, you're like, yeah, I'm golden. And you only really get tired towards the end of the night when it's time to go to sleep, then you're sleeping enough. And whatever number that is for you is the number for you. It's like if aliens, you know, kidnapped you and put you up on a ship and they're like, Hey human, how much food do humans need? You're like, ah, you know, we all kind of eat a slightly different amount of food, but generally humans will stop eating and that's when you know they're done right it's 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 not that complicated but a lot of us go crazy 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 about how much sleep do i need and it's usually the people diving deep into the literature that are they know they're really tired and they know their kids are harassing yeah. them in the middle of the night and they're like well i guess if i get six hours like do you feel rested they're like no god no i haven't felt rest in years well guess what you haven't been building your ultimate muscle in years so that's kind of the foundation of, of muscle growth yeah but there's lots to say about various mistakes and misconceptions people have about parts of those processes no i think it's it's a wonderful little kind of, it's just a good foundation it gives us a point to jump off from that i think is just phenomenal and, and you really kind of kind of wrangled in a lot of the main issues but one of the big ones that i i would love to talk about and it kind of comes back to just calibrating the intensity of your training is when you say getting like three two one reps from failure how does somebody figure that out if they are either one, not somebody who's trained to failure often, maybe they aren't comfortable training to failure because they don't have a spotter or they don't, maybe, maybe they're trying to train to failure with a movement that they should not, like perhaps a barbell squat. Are there ways to build the intuitive ability to go, yep, that's where I need to stop. That's that one to two, three rep sweet spot. Yes. So the first core principle, if you're going to try to get close to failure and see what that feels like to make sure you're doing it and checking that box and your training is the principle of you know, your technique is always and everywhere. Number one, mm -hmm. if you go to failure on a squat of which the last rep doesn't look like a squat, but looks like someone being born in reverse. <laughs> I don't know that calling me crazy, but I think you failed the squat a as while it ago. instructed in a book like five reps before that okay so, so using mechanical failure as the term there to define when you've hit yeah technical failure mechanical mm -hmm. failure whatever your term you just there's can't a difference, move the weight yeah. anymore with without good technique now if Perfect. you can like arch your back like cat do some crazy stuff then you're not really training anymore you're just surviving or something like that yeah like, <laughs> you somebody's like hey how was your training today you're like terrible but i got a bunch of reps like okay that sucks so first of all technique always has to be good and then being that the 
technique is good for all of your reps, especially difficult to do as they get closer to failure, but we'll figure that out. Uh, that's a really core foundation. Once you have that foundation and that's something you've sort of committed to practice, then what you can do is like add a rep and or five pounds to the bar mm -hmm. every time you come to the gym or every week. And sooner or later, you will hit failure mm -hmm. because you can't just become the strongest thing that's ever existed. It'd be funny if there's some old lady listening to these videos in France. <laughs> and it turns out five years later, she's like the strongest single living entity in the universe. It's just like, I guess I just kept adding five pounds and now gravity bends around me. Like, <laughs> that's not going to happen, right? So if you start out lifting 50 pounds in, you know, let's say a squat or something, and then you slowly add five pounds here, a rep here, five pounds here. At some point, you're going to be doing sets of 30 with 225 pounds. Your legs are going to be unbelievably enormous. Everyone's going to hate you. Your boyfriend's going to leave you. Your husband's going to leave you. That's right. It's two different people. And you're going to be hopeless <laughs> and alone, just like you always thought you were going to end up. But on a serious note, as, as you keep adding, at some point, your body's going to be like, whoa, this is really hard. Mm -hmm. And then you'll notice a distinct slowing down of repetitions. Yeah. So this isn't always the case because some people are so athletic and explosive that they actually move at roughly the same pace. And then one rep just doesn't go anywhere. They go halfway up and then it just comes back down. Yeah. But generally speaking, you'll see at least one rep get harder. Even if it doesn't slow down, it's going to feel like the weight is heavier. If the weight starts out feeling heavy and you stop the set and the weight feels exactly as heavy, you didn't get close to failure. Yeah. Those last couple of reps have to be like a little grindy. Even if they don't look like it, they have to feel a little grindy. Totally. And then you know you're getting there. And then you still add five pounds to, uh, to the movement next week. And you still add a repetition potentially. And then you still want to confirm it. You want to get to actual failure. And there's some, like you said, very great point. There's some machines that are more conducive to that. So for example, if you fail doing upright rows, I mean, you just like lower the bar yeah. to wherever you got it. And then you're done. And then sure. it's fine. <laughs> if you fail with squats with no spotters, then they can, you know, it's not a high probability that you're going to die. You could sure have a very bad time of it. Oh, yeah. uh, so you got to pick some lifts. And then when you learn what failure is like from the lifts on which you can fail, then you kind of start figuring out, oh, this is kind of what it's probably going to be like on lifts that I can. So for example, what your quads feel like when you go to failure on lunges, they get real sluggish. It feels like you're out of touch with them. Mm -hmm. And then they just move real slow. And it feels like halfway through the range of motion, they're like rocks and you can't they feel like them. they're drunk. Like yes. it, it, it's the best way I could describe it. I do walking lunges all the time. Oftentimes the weight vest, it's a unique form of fatigue. That's kind of yes. al almost not specific to the quads, but like for high, high level quad training, high volume quad yes. training feels yes. unique. It's weird. It's like your, your brain is sending signals, do something. And the quads are like, what? <laughs> They're passed out by the bar, cigarette butts on them. So, you know, drunk. So, uh, in it, when you know that you have that feeling in lunges, but look, Nothing's going to happen to lunges. You're just going to sag down to the ground and scoot on your butt and laugh and it'll be fine. Then you'll get up. But when you're doing squats later, later that week, later that month or later that year, and you feel that feeling in your quads, but the rep goes up, rack that bar because mm -hmm. you don't have that many reps left, possibly zero, possibly one. Yeah, no, I love that. You, you hit on something too with the velocity thing that I thought was great. And it's something I noticed a lot, especially when I was training clients one-on-one -on -one in, in a personal training setting. I did this all the time, especially when I was in my undergrad, you get really tuned into the velocity at which a client could do a specific lift on. And you'd be like, okay, I think we have about two or three more. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, how did you know? You'd be like, well, there's like a precipitous drop-off in the speed of the reps at a certain point. 
And I remember going to a, a sports performance symposium for the Sacramento Kings NBA team. That's like an hour from where I live. And on all these like gorgeous Sornix uh, squat racks, they have mounted these individual GPS units, which track the speed of the athlete through space. So they can actually use rep to rep velocity to gauge the speed at which these guys are moving or moving the bar or whatever. And it's like a great way for them to manage fatigue because they're so interested in that. But I have noticed, and you have noticed, and even people who train athletes whose maybe output is more geared towards uh, power and like relative strength than it is hypertrophy. But like that velocity thing is pretty consistent. When you start to feel that big slowdown on the concentric, like that might be your first key that you're getting close. And then the sensation, and and then and then you better throw, you better get out of there because you might end up pinned. I love that. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's different for different people. So it really the average is person, a slow down, maybe it's two or three reps left for some people. They slow down after a rep, you know, on a, a, ten, a set of 10 to failure, they'll slow down after rep two or three and just keep grinding miracle. They have no idea why you the see hell they can do that. Not to bring up sports again, but like if you watch the NFL combine, it's, it's a great example of how some people can just do the 225 bench press absolutely textbook form extremely fast and then they hit a wall and it just dies yep. and then oh. other people they're just counting reps it's like i thought this guy was done five reps ago how is yes. he grinding this out uh, and this yes. is like across all positions across all body types you see this variant so you you, I, you now that people have like an idea of okay i can i can work my way to that point where i can effectively gauge whether that set was or wasn't effective something that i think would be also like decent to hit on is range of motion. Like you hear a lot of people communicate that there are dangers of training through, you know, extreme or full ranges of motion. And you're somebody who I think trains through a very, very full range of motion uh, relative to what some people might train or what some people might think is safe. Like what are the, the benefits for muscle growth specifically of training through a full range of motion? And, and what are people leaving on the table by training only in their active range or only through the range of the target tissue? Because I, I get lost in this noise a lot myself because people can make such compelling arguments, but I, I do feel like there's an answer here. Yeah. A lot of people that use the term active range have no idea what they're saying. And I mean that in literal sense of they couldn't specifically define that uh, term yeah. uh, that is universally applicable and is in, in, in current, internally coherent. Yeah. Uh, it's just they have some like a notion of what that means and they haven't really been super specific about it. Sure. So uh, that being said, you know, I think that there's a couple of real big benefits. One is various parts of your muscle contract a little better and the parts of it are more active and they probably get a little bit more growth stimulus in various parts of the range of motion mm -hmm. of a full compound lift. So if you do partial range, you might get some, you know, five or 10% less growth in various areas that could, you have, you could have received a hundred percent or a hundred percent total growth or something. Sure. So that's a small point, but it's nonetheless the case. Another yeah. thing is that um, probably a disproportionate amount of the hypertrophy in most muscles occurs with their, when they're at a stretch, but they can still generate a lot of tension in that mm -hmm. position. So if you take biceps, for example, and you straighten your arms completely and you do a fly mm -hmm. by completely straightening your arm and doing a super, super deep fly at some point, the stretch is so immense that your biceps are actually not even turned on much by your nervous system because it feels like, well, I can't really generate much force out of here anyway. So I'm not even going to try it. Your, your body does that nervous system does that all the time. does that to your pecs as well. So if you do super straight arm strict flies all the way, super down to the ground, and it's a cool range of motion. It looks cool, 
but you'll have to use such tiny, tiny little dumbbells because your body will only be able to produce so much, such tiny little forces out of that bottom, even accounting for the fact that the leverage is poor, that you're just going to do a whole bunch of reps and be like, I don't know, man, I feel like I'm just kind of stretching with weights here. I don't feel a lot of tension in the target muscle. The target muscle's not really going close to failure. I feel some weird pain in my joints. So definitely like a good definition, actual definition of active range of motion is uh, not necessarily even active because there's active tension and passive tension and passive mm -hmm. does help. But it's, you know, getting the muscle to a real profound stretch from which it can still generate a meaningful amount of tension. And, and meaningful is clearly a, a spectrum term. It's a subjective term, but it nonetheless allows you to ground yourself in saying, okay, it's probably okay for me to use a slightly range, a slightly short range of motion and use 25 pound dumbbells for uh, flies. Probably okay for me to use the 15s in a bigger range of motion. But like if I'm using the two and a halfs because I'm so stretched out, or if I'm like, just doing these tiny little reps with the hundreds, it's probably wrong, right? And and most people know when their muscle itself is stretched and still yeah. feels pretty strong. Deep at the bottom of a leg press, your quads are stretched to crap, but they feel tight and they feel like they can push. That's yeah. probably a real good. And a lot of times it's taking exercises through their full range of just um, exercise motions, like lat pull downs. You know, you should probably pull to the chest. The answer yeah. is why, why? Why would you pull to the chest? Yeah, because there's all kinds of cool muscles that turn on even between your chin and your chest and you probably want to grow them too uh, like a lot of people get carried away with thinking that you know every muscle group is trained by isolation exercise or every exercise just trains one muscle group that's not true you know like we do barbell rows and we do pull downs or pull-ups and we can get a huge back but there's like eight different muscles in your back and I know, which it, one which exercises for the rhomboids you know it really has become almost sexy to take what was once thought of as a high value compound movement that is going to stimulate multiple tissues and be like, well, yeah, but this is a lat biased version of the hyper compound movement that was once for all the muscles of the back and forearm, but now it's only for the lats. It's like, well, yes. the other ones still work there. You just kind of change the name. <laughs> for sure. And it's totally fun and totally fine to have biased versions of movements you know, the wide grip bench press is biased towards the chest the close grip is biased a little bit more towards totally. the tricep and that's okay but you just have to ask yourself in your needs analysis when you're building your program do i really need a biasing factor or do i need general growth yeah. and also some muscles just tend to be limiting factors better so for example like when i'm doing my vertical pulling or something i don't really need a lat biased version of a lat pull down it's like my lats get a great stimulus from pull downs i had 99 problems with lat stimulus is just not one of them sure. so like why would I do a lat biased version if I can bias other muscles in my back and totally. hit my lats really well? Totally. No, I, I love that. I think it, it's a good segue into perhaps exercise selection specifically for hypertrophy. And I think that people like a balance if they're not training exclusively for bodybuilding, they might say, look, okay, I want to do some hypertrophy work. I want to pick efficient exercises, but I still want to fucking deadlift or I still want to squat or I still want to bench. Sure. I like to do that. I think people enjoy doing that. And assuming that there's maybe a blend going on, but we're looking at having a significant chunk of the workout before the development of the physique. What are some movements that you think might perhaps be overrated or like deitized or they exist on this pedestal as like you have to do it where you might say no not so much like the actual stimulus that you're getting at the tissue isn't worth the strain of the exercise yeah it's great you you, you put it almost into the terms i was going to put it into and a more technical way to say it is the the stimulus you're getting is perhaps not worth the fatigue that you're getting out of it mm -hmm. right like um, you know if we can make a car that it's like a mercedes-esque hundred thousand dollar car 
but it comes at the cost of $200,000 to make, at GWIZ, that's not a really good business model. But if you can make your $100,000 car for $50,000, we get to keep $50,000. That's really cool. So costs and benefits play in. Um, and that way we can see that you know the benefit is how much stimulus you're getting to target muscle. And the cost is often fatigue. And there are a couple of types of fatigue, but generally one is systemic fatigue. Like some exercises just make you overall really tired. Mm -hmm. That can interfere with other exercises. Like if you finish a, a five sets of deadlifts and someone's like, all right, time to train your quads with leg press. You could be like, I'm sorry, what? I don't even know where I am anymore. I'm not there are certain exercises that if done in sequence, it, it all but makes you want to just fucking walk out. hundred <laughs> percent. And even if you don't, even if you try, you just won't be able to try hard enough to do yeah. justice to whatever it is you did after. And then there's also joint and connective tissue fatigue, which is like, you know, if an exercise is great for your pecs, but it literally just beats the crap out of your elbows. I mean, how sustainable is that? You got to wonder, is there another exercise here? Is there something I could be doing that's better? So mm -hmm. one exercise that is very well practiced and is, is very defensible in a bunch of different contexts, but maybe not as much in pure hypertrophy training is the conventional deadlift or even sure. sumo deadlift, uh, from a regular height for most people. It's an exercise of which done properly, we leverage our entire body to use as much muscular, as much musculature as possible that diffuses the amount of work done by any specific muscle, which is the point is when you want to lift a lot of weight, you have to spread the load out to all the muscles, right? Totally. But it's like, it's like teaching a society language, but only teaching one individual member and a few words. And then together the, the society speaks a language. Well, like, you know, if you want to teach one person a language, that's not a really good way to go about it. Mm -hmm. So if you want to grow your glutes, but in order to deadlift, you're using your glutes and your hamstrings, your lower back, upper back, quads, adductors, how much of that stimulus are the glutes getting? And you got to share more, that stimulus, unfortunately. You gotta, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to share. I need big glutes. I, I'm greedy up in this bitch. I'm greedy Right. If there's here. like a big glute little block going around in a kindergarten, I'm grabbing <laughs> that shit. I don't, I don't, I don't, I never learned how to share. You know? Yeah. That's all. So me. yeah. As a matter of fact, my parole officer says you have to stop grabbing at people's glutes and that's really my problem. <laughs> so, uh, among many others, of course. So basically what we want are exercises for hypertrophy and all the exercises are good, but the great ones really take one, two or three muscles mm -hmm. and they push those muscles close to their own internal limits. Where it's like the reason you can't do any more reps is because your biceps or chest or lats or whatever it is are just done. They're really done. They're really pumped. They're really, they feel a ton of tension through them. The burn at higher reps is insane. After that set, that muscle specifically feels weird. Like if you, if you ever have clients do uh, barbell or dumbbell lunges for the first few times, or even just at a high volume anytime, and then you're like, Hey, flex your butt cheeks. Like try to like do the humping motion. They do it. They're like, Oh, what the hell's happening to my ass? It's like contracting on its own and it hurts. Am I cramping? You're like, yep. Do you think your glutes got hit? They're like, well, yeah, of course they're messed up. They had to hit. But after a deadlift, it usually doesn't happen. It's like, Hey, do the humping motion. You're like, I don't know. I'm just really tired. I don't know what to tell you. My back hurts. I'm right? pumping so, my low back and I'm exhausted. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and funny enough, deadlifts are excellent or spinal erector exercise because they actually do tend to have spinal erectors as the limiting factor. You so can see that too. You can mm -hmm. just see that oh, yeah. on the physiques of people who have built whatever it is, like when some semblance of a, a physique that you'd look at on stage or a, a model and you're like, they have a great physique, but they have an indistinguishable, like they, they like they didn't, they didn't deadlift versus somebody where you're like that person yeah. obviously used the deadlift. You can see it in yes. the erectors. Yes. The cable like erectors. So basically we want to make sure that exercises are instead of leveraging us super well for the lift, leveraging us super well to target the muscle or muscles that we want. Mm -hmm. And again, leverage for target of the muscles is a matter of foot position. It's a matter 
of hand placement, it's a matter of body placement, but it's also a matter of making sure that the muscle has to work very hard and making sure that you're getting a full range of motion, especially stretch at a lower position. And mm-hmm. we talk about like the glutes. I mean, you can bring your knee up to your chest in most cases. That's the full range of motion and the stretch of the glutes in the human body. Yeah. You ever do that during deadlifts? It's not, not, not even, even by close. Yeah. So if you do some lunges or you do some Bulgarian split squats to a deficit, you're going to be like, holy shit, something insane is happening to my glutes. What is it? And it's like, well, yeah, they're being stretched under load for the first time. And thus they're going to get sore and they're going to get pumped and they're going to get tension and they're going to get a burn. And all those good things mean that, that they're probably going to be growing some glutes. That type of work specifically, just to, as a quick tangent, that's done where a muscle is in its lengthened position seems to have the highest likelihood of causing soreness, right? That type of work and work with longer eccentric periods. Yes. So if somebody's like, shit, I'm sore out of nowhere or like, I know that can be a recoverability thing, but like in, if say somebody um, is wanting to perhaps optimize for soreness, I want an exercise that's going to make me as sore as possible. I'm an advanced trainee. Not that that would be an effective goal, but if they're just a total masochist, you might do that with those really lengthened positions and those really long eccentrics, right? Yes. And not coincidentally, those are the things that grow the most muscle as well. Yeah. Um, I think, so- I think it's a good point when people ask often like, well, should I be sore? It's like, I think, yeah, you probably should fucking be sore. And I don't, I don't mean say that to sound unscientific, but the truth of the matter is like, if you're not sore and you're trying to build muscle, something's wrong. Yeah. Well, so like we can say, because this has been experimentally validated that you don't need to get sore to get jacked to Mm -hmm. put on muscle. But if you have a muscle, that's a problem for you. Like it just doesn't really ever seem to grow much. And also you've never gotten it sore. There's a very decent candidate hypothesis that you've just never done enough for that muscle, whether that enough is range of motion or stretch under load or eccentric focus, or even just number of sets. It's a great point. So if you can get a muscle reliably sore and heal just on time for your next session with that muscle, then do you have a lot of problems potentially as to why you're not growing, but training difficulty, training stimulus is not one of them. Because if you think it's just an interesting philosophical sort of uh, thing to think about, just a thought experiment. If I can get my muscle reliably sore to the point where it heals just before I have to train it again, and I'm not training it hard enough, what the fuck would training it hard enough even look like? I get sore through the session, then I'm not recovering. Mm -hmm. So if you are able to get sore or so fatigued that your muscle barely recovers by the time the next session is, like the reason you're not growing is some combination of genetics, pharmacology, or nutrition, or recovery. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's not your training. But- if you're not getting sore, maybe it's not your training. Maybe you're totally fine. But yeah, if you're not, point. yeah, if you're, if you're not getting sore and your muscles aren't growing like you like, and you think you have your nutrition, blah, 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 et cetera, down pretty good. Then it begs the question of do your, does your exercise technique or selection and, or your proximity to failure and, or your load use. Cause some exercises you'll only really get sore if you're using lower reps or higher reps or vice versa. And, or of course the most obvious one is volume. Like I remember I used to think that the leg uh, curl was just not a very good hamstring exercise. Cause I would do three sets of 12 or whatever, and just not feel very sore afterwards mm-hmm. or very pumped or very anything. And, uh, I would do lots of stiff like a deadlift at the time. And with you know, two sets of eight, I would be sore for half a week. And I'd say, well, that really is a good ha- hamstring exercise. But then I, I sort of started thinking more deeply and I started getting my PhD in sports science. And I was like, you know what, why don't I try like four or five sets of hamstring curl? And then I got reliably sore, pump, tension, burn, et cetera. So sometimes it's just, you're not doing enough. And I will say, Mm -hmm. since you have a a pretty sizable female audience, women typically can do two things. 
they can take a bigger beating in the gym. Yeah. The number of sets they can do is higher than that of their male counterparts. And they can also typically recover more completely and faster than males. Yes. So a lot of times, one of the big problems that happens is female, and this is a problem that happens less and less now, but uh, females consume training information, either meant for males or the, the, the FUBU effect, like for us, by us, like most males write for other males or make videos for other males sure. and not even for other males. They just make p videos for people like themselves. And they either don't think about women at all when they make them, or they just assume women are the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll, a lot of times, a lot of women get introduced to training through like, you know, uh, you know boyfriends. male boyfriends or um, husbands, fiancés, one night stands, huge mistakes, torrid love affairs. What else we got? Centaurs. Mm. I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm just thinking boy. of the many ways that romance <laughs> can express itself. You know, centaur runs up. You're like, I don't know. It's part horse, part man. Man's kind of cute. And horse clearly has its advantages. I'm done. I swear to God. <laughs> But in any case, <laughs> so what ends up happening is women will do these you know, three sets of 10 type of routines twice a week. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, yeah, like, that's fine. I, it's not that hard. And sometimes they're like, oh, it's not that hard. I, I did it. I, I successfully accomplished it. Like when, when things aren't very challenging and you're still in the beginner phases and you're getting good results, it's not exactly like a complaint you can file, right? Mm -hmm. That's great. The problem happens when you're not a beginner anymore, six months, 12 months, whatever, 18 months into training. You start to be like, yeah, I really wish my glutes would grow more hamstrings, quads, biceps, shoulders, whatever it be, but they're kind of stalling. And my boyfriend, everybody just grows all the time. He looks at food and weights and he grows. Fuck him. I hate him. And it's not working for me. Well, the reality is you, you could be doing six sets of 10 by then instead of three sets of 10. You could be doing three times a week training for muscle group because you can recover. And again, you don't have to, it's not a mystery is am I sore after a session and for how long mm -hmm. am I weak? after a session and for how long, when my weakness and soreness go away, am I hitting the muscle again? If the answer is, well, no, gee, I have like three or four days between when I'm actually recovered versus when I go again to the gym to hit that muscle, that's three or four days. You could have just been smashing it for an hour and then growing for the other three or four days. So it's one of these things that really, really, really is, I think important to spread the word. A lot of times females can do more, they can recover more. And it's a good idea for them to try a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And listen, when you are ha when you have a routine, which leaves you sore, it, it, what we call overlapping soreness. So you're sore. You train Monday, Wednesday, Friday for your glutes, and Monday your glutes get sore, and Wednesday they're still sore, and Friday they're still sore. That's bad. That's under recovery until you get to that point or a point where your weakness is so profound you start to get weaker. Mm -hmm. Like generally speaking, a higher number of sets or a higher frequency per week is marginally better. Now, that margin can be quite high for females that mm -hmm. potentially have a maximum recoverable volume, the, the most they can do and, and still grow muscle of like eight sets per session per muscle three times a week, but they're doing four sets per session twice a week. And it's like, well, you know, you only get small, you know, slight increment more gains if you do more. Well, yeah, but if you do three or four times more, gee, uh, that's going to make a big difference in your results. And a lot of times there's also a threshold issue there where for some more advanced females that are maybe a little bit more genetically resistant to muscle growth, four sets of, let's say, um, lunges or something or squats twice a week may at some point be what's called their maintenance volume. It's just enough training volume to maintain their size, but not enough to make them bigger. So even if they continue to get stronger through neurological adaptations and sure. better technique, they may not get much bigger. And what a terrible deal. I mean, like if I'm not getting bigger in the gym, why, why the hell am I there? Like maybe I could they spend more time doing something else. If I'm going to the gym with the intention of improving, 
I kind of want to know what it takes to improve. You know, like if you get into like, you have an opportunity to drive like a go-kart race car and you're like, all right, like which way do I turn? And no one tells you, you're like, well, I don't think the points just to ride this thing around. Isn't there like a race course? Like, oh yeah, yeah. Turn left over there, right over there. Like, oh, thank God somebody told me. So if I'm going to the gym and I want to get glutes or quads as big as possible, I kind of want to know like, Hey, like, what's, what's the least I can do to get some results at least. Mm-hmm. And then what's the most I can do if I'm really like gung ho about it. And that range, the you know, maintenance volume is what it takes to maintain minimum effective volume is a minimum amount that it takes any detectable gains which people obsess over, but I'm not so interested in because why the hell would you want minimum gains? Yeah. And then the maximum recoverable volume is much higher. Somewhere between minimum effective, maximum recoverable, that's where you want to be. And that's generally found by doing enough sets every session, two to four sessions a week, in which that local muscle is either sore and are quite tired for until that next session comes up. And if you're doing that, where can you even hypothetically do that? Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think for for me, I see this a lot because I've, I've worked with women in person. I work with many women now still in person and online, and they just seem to be a little more fatigue resistant than men. And I find they actually tend to enjoy more variety in their training and more exercise. So I'm wondering here, what's the most effective way if you're trying to kind of incrementally up that volume? Would it be better to just say, hey, look, I have my five exercises that I'm doing this session. I'm going to add a set to these. Or would you add in additional exercises to perhaps oblige that desire for variety? Or is that actually less effective because you're maybe going to do better doing a fourth set through a movement that you've already substantially fatigued that muscle in through a full range of motion? Like, for example, when you do a a dumbbell bench press, the fourth set is harder than the first set. Would the fifth set be more effective than the first set of a cable fly? How might one add those sets in? Because that's a philosophical thing that I've kind of always wondered. Hey guys, taking a break from the show to tell you about our amazing sports nutrition partner, Legion. Legion makes the best evidence-based formulas for sports performance, sports nutrition, recovery, and fat loss. I don't recommend many supplements. In fact, I think you can get the majority of the nutrition you need from a whole foods diet. But let's be honest, many of us are either on the go and need assistance, or quite frankly, we're not going to settle for average and we want to get the absolute most we can out of our training. So Legion is the company I go to for all of my supplement staples, whether it's creatine, which I get from their product Recharge, my protein that I get from either Whey Plus or Plant Plus, two of the best tasting proteins on the market. They come in a variety of flavors and they don't have a ton of fillers and gum. Just whey made from grass-fed cows from Ireland in a plant protein blend with a fully comprehensive dose of amino acids. I like to take a pre-workout. Sometimes I like it with caffeine. Sometimes I like to enjoy coffee in the morning and have my pre-workout later without caffeine. Legion makes both. Both the pre-workout with caffeine and without come with a full dosage of clinically effective ingredients like beta-alanine, 
betaine anhydrous, and L-citrulline to help you perform your best. They also make a phenomenal greens powder loaded with one of my favorite things, reishi mushroom, and a men's and women's multivitamin that contain a few different things that men and women might need for their unique physiology. So when you think of your vitamins, your fish oil, your pre-workout, your protein, all of the things that many of you take every single day. I'd encourage you to check out Legion. They have an amazing line, wonderful products, wonderful flavors, naturally sweetened, no dyes and colors. You can't go wrong. You can shop using the show notes below or by going to legionathletics.com and checking out using the promo code Danny. That will save you 20% and it will actually help you get two times points towards future orders, which you can use the same as cash. Pretty cool, guys. So head over to legionathletics.com and check out using the promo code Danny to save on all your sports supplement needs. Back to the show. What's going on, guys? Coach Danny here, taking a break from the episode to tell you about my coaching company, Core Coaching Method, and more specifically, our one-on-one, fully tailored online coaching program. My online coaching program has kind of been the flagship for core coaching method for a while. Of course, we do have PDF programming and we have app-based programming, but if you want a truly tailored one-on-one experience with a coach like myself or a member of my coaching team, someone who is certified, somebody who has multiple years of experience working with clients in person online, somebody who is licensed to provide a macro nutrition plan, somebody who is actually good at communicating with clients because they've done it for years, whether that be a be via phone call, email, text, right? This one-on-one coaching program is really designed to give you all the support you need with custom training designed for you, whether you're training from home, the gym, around your limitations and your goals. Nothing cookie cutter here, as well as easy to follow macronutrition programs that are non-restrictive. You'll get customized support directly from your coach's email or they'll text you or they'll WhatsApp you. We'll find the communication medium that best supports your goals as well as provides you with the accountability and the expertise you need to succeed, as well as biofeedback monitoring, baked-in accountability support, and all of the stuff that you need from your coach when you check in. We keep our rosters relatively small so that we can make sure you get the best support possible. But you can apply today by going over to corecoachingmethod.com, selecting the online coaching option, and if we have spots available, We'll definitely reach out to you to see if you're a good candidate. And if we don't, we'll put you on a waiting list, but we'll be sure to give you the best shot at the best coaching in the industry. So head over to corecoachingmethod.com and apply for one-on-one coaching with me and my team today. That's a really good question. So generally speaking, it seems like the stimulus to fatigue ratio is stable and or improves over the number of steps you do of a certain exercise. But what we have found mostly through lots and lots of coaching experience, the personal experience at RP, is that right around anywhere between five and seven working sets into an exercise, you develop a considerable amount of staleness, mm-hmm. where if you just switched exercises, the everything feels better. The stimulus yeah. seems better. The yes. fatigue seems lower. There's only so many barbell squats you can do until you're like, I I'm done like with this. Presses, if only to get the fuck out of the squat rack. And it's not Seriously. even... Uh, there's a psychological component, but there's certainly a neurological and a fatigue component as well, because you're just bashing this particular group of motor neurons and motor units over and over and over where you could be bashing a slightly different pool. It would feel better, hit slightly different parts of the muscle, et cetera. So I'd say if you start out with like three sets of squats and potentially you can recover from up to six sets of total quad work, I just stick with squats on that one day. Now, if you you train quads Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one day squats, another's hack squats, another's deep lunges. Hey, there's your variety because variety is also cool week to week. I think a lot of trainers get obsessed with injecting as much variety as possible into a single session. 
Yes. But you got to remember, like, okay, if there's three leg exercises that you like to do, use all three of them Monday. Fuck, are you going to do on Wednesday? All three mm-hmm. of them again? That's yeah. kind of lame. But if you really beat the shit out of one on Monday, beat the shit out of another on Wednesday, beat the crap out of the other one on Friday, then by the time they get to next Monday, they're like, oh, cool, squats again. I feel like it's been ages. And, and that really keeps the client excited and refreshed. Now, if you're doing eight or 12 sets per muscle group, what you do is you start out with two exercises uh, because they're going to have to take up that volume. But just start with like, you know, two sets of each one, right? Mm-hmm. Two sets of dumbbell press, two sets of incline barbell press. And then as you go through your chest workout over the weeks, you add sets to whichever one feels better, right? Uh, and the, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is higher. You just say, oh, I was really feeling inclined. So I added a few sets, but now like sort of tired of inclines, I'm just going to do five sets for the next few workouts. I'm going to add a few sets to the dumbbell press and so on and so forth. So there is a possibility to like, after you get to five sets of incline, you add dumbbell press sets. But what we found is, you know, different exercises hit different parts of your muscle. They hit different mm-hmm. joints differently and they can actually have like sort of interfering effects. So for mm-hmm. example, if you are doing lat pull downs and then you start doing rows for lats, cause you need more volume. If for weeks you've been doing lat pull downs and you also have like, let's say a stiff legged deadlift progression on another day of the week, let's say two days later, yeah, like, look, it's a vertical pulley movement. It doesn't interfere with stuff like that. It's all that progression's great. Your hamstrings are getting great. Glutes getting great. Lower backs, everything's great. But you throw in bent over rows to that lat day. And the mm-hmm. next week, your SLDL falls by 50 pounds or something because your back is still tired, your lower yep. back. Yep. And you're like, ah, crap. So basically, like, uh, for lack of a better term, we sort of described it as um, uh, injecting exercises into the middle of a mesocycle can have a bit of like a chaotic effect. Yeah, definitely. It, it feels like it would. It just, whenever you sit down, even when you're trying to position specificity, like base days, like, oh, I want to put my pole day here and my, le- oh, oh, shoot. Uh, I don't want those too close to each other because if they're too close to each other, I have to make a lot of trade-offs. And when you get to the yes. like granular level of individual exercises, oh, yes. it, it does actually become a little bit complicated to add yes. new ones in there. Unless yes. you're kind of reckless. Yes. And if you start adding exercises, so you do a one-off, a one-pass, essentially like uh, optimization problem when you're arranging exercises through the days and the weeks for different muscle groups. It's okay, my shoulders are going to be, shoulder joints to be a little sore after this, but I'll mm-hmm. compensate with this exercise. You can solve that equation. Now, and then make a really good program that works really well. Of course, learn on the fly, you can modify something. But if you're going to be injecting halfway through different exercises, you have to resolve that optimization problem. Mm-hmm. And that kind of explodes into combinatorially fractal BS of like, okay, well, I'll change this to that. No, wait, that affects this. It, fuck that. Like, I want a good, decent program. And then the simplest thing for me is to progress in sets within the exercise. Yeah. Throwing in whole new exercises is, again, logically very feasible, but practically uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a big deal. It, it's almost... um you it know, is disruptive. If, it, it, and if that same thing occurs in, in a bunch of other situations. Like if you're going to, you know, going into war and you need certain battlefield equipment, et cetera, you kind of want to know what sort of like, if you're a supply and refueling base in, in a, a, a war zone, you kind of want to know like, what kind of shit am I going to need to refuel? Cause I have the different nozzles and spigots for it. They go, yeah, by the way, tanks are coming. You're like, nobody oh, fucking told me they're like, oh, we need, we need tanks now. Like, well, you guys should have said this up front because now this is going to delay everything and it's going to suck. You kind of want to know the scope of the problem and keep things as simple as they can be 
to still get your really great results without needless complexity. Uh, you know, and it, it, it's almost this like uh, another stupid analogy. If you put ice cubes in a drink first, and then you pour the soda. The soda just goes all around the ice cubes. Everything's great. Can you technically pour soda in first and then insert ice cubes one by one? Yes, but it's annoying. It's time consuming. You have fingers all over the ice and it splashes and that's super annoying. You got to wipe everything. So maybe you're real close to the soda and then you drop them in like this and somebody say, well, it doesn't matter which way you do it. Like, no, it doesn't for sure, but practically it does. So let's yeah. just do it the simple way. That's why I like to do all the exercises we need the whole meso through no new exercises to disrupt things, but we just increase and decrease sets as we need. I love that. I think that's something that's been tough as a trainer is like, because you go, okay, I, I understand the need for variety as somebody who lifts and doesn't want to go insane. And I understand for you that you want variety, but uh, selecting for or optimizing for variety at the expense of the efficacy of the actual session, isn't really a good idea. And so I love cool. the idea of sprinkling it across those exercises. And then if you can pick your spots and find ones that maybe do work well, that you can layer in without too much competition, you might be able to have a little fun with it, but it's best left kind of chaos free so that you can actually overload across the block as intended. And you really just said it all. And I used to actually describe this to my clients verbatim because like uh, Nick, Nick and I, the uh, co-founder of RP, him and I trained a bunch of really, really sharp folks in New York City. There's executive lawyers, all these other crazy, super rich people, super smart people that went to Dartmouth, Yale, and all this other crap. And they'd be like, hey, can I do the XYZ exercise? It looks fun. And I was like, yeah, check this out. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> However, please be aware of the following. Like, I'm willing to increase variety for you to the extent that it bumps up against our borderlands of what is effective. They have a candidacy list of maybe five to 10 exercises per muscle group that I can guarantee you are very, very effective. We will use all of those if you want within the course of a week. However, I won't use exercises, you know, 13 through 57 on that list because they suck. Like if you go to a really expensive restaurant that's French cuisine and they put like a McDonald's cheeseburger on your plate, you're like, what the fuck? They're like, it's food. It's variety. Surprise. You're like, hold on. I will like variety, but within the context of really elite French cuisine, like no shit. That's why you're here. So I think some people can get carried away in their heads uh, and this is all all met with very due diligence and, and, sure. and due due justice. Um, we all can get carried away as to why the fuck we're in the gym. Look like, like no doubt your clients pay you because you're fucking cool ass dude and you're awesome to talk to. That's probably not the number one reason they're no paying doubt. you. Like they're probably paying you to try to look like something they really want to look like, be healthy, feel great, and have a, a fucking time pushing themselves and having a good time. That that's results based. And results mean we need to stick to some shit that really works. And, uh, you know, that really should be the number one thing. You know, like if, again, stupid battlefield analogy, if you're in a crazy virtual reality war game and you're like, all right, we're fighting zombies. And they're like, choose your weapon. And you're like, blender. Like, okay, anything north of a grenade launcher. Like, okay, so tank or airplane or helicopter. Like, yeah, all those are good answers because they actually work to kill zombies blender i don't know maybe some creative way you know so a lot of times and the thing seems like a strained analogy but it's really not no because a lot of clients are like why you know can't i do squats on a bosu ball and i'm like that's like trying to blender I, zombies the, to these death. are these are like legitimate questions that you get if you interface with the general population because they might yes. say oh i would like to work on my balance and you might say well that's wonderful uh one of the best ways you can work on your balance <laughs> is by not being a weak motherfucker so let's start there yeah. 
uh, well, what if I worked on this exercise on the little upside down ball? I'd be like, you'd probably break your ankle and be out for six months. But if you want an incredibly inefficient exercise and you're going to force the issue on it, allow me to present you with something you know, substantially safer, but still in these, like this stuff happens a lot because we have this little reptilian brain that just wants to bounce around. And I also think that a lot of trainees, uh, I don't know, they're just like, whether they're your personal training clients or they're just not really invested bodybuilders, like they're drawn to shit they haven't done before. And they're excited by shit they haven't done before. And bodybuilders are like one of the strangely small sections of the population that loves doing a lot of the same shit all the time, every day with very little variance. And that tends to show up in like their personal and professional lives too. It's just like an archetype. So like some people are going to force, force the issue. And I love the idea of having like, I have an, a, a, like a list of highly qualified candidate exercises. You can pick from this, but if it, I will not allow you to go beyond that. Like, I love that. Oh, for sure. And the thing is, like, it's always super easy to explain that because at the end of the day, you can just real talk people. It'll be like, check this out, Janice. What do you really want out of this? It's just going to be like, for real? Like, yeah, for real. She's like, I want to look like I did when I was 32. I'm 57. Great. That is largely possible, but it's not easy. Janice, what your friends look like at work? She's like, I don't want to talk about it. Exactly. Do you want to look like your friends? No, they do BOSU balls. They have personal <laughs> trainers because so few people are willing to do what it takes. They do the hard stuff that really works. And look, I can tell you, Janice, I got all kinds of fun shit to do in the gym if you want to waste your time. But I have other shit that's also still some version of fun. It's a really difficult kind of fun, sometimes monotonous kind of fun that's going to get you in the shape you want. And you can walk out of the gym every day and transfer money to me via PayPal every three weeks with the confidence that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing to get the fucking results that you're trying to get. Cause if you're not here to get some kind of results, gee whiz, you know, we got all sorts of shit we could be doing, you know, uh, for the love of God, it's, it's, it's a huge open-ended thing. It's like coming up to, you know, like in countries in which drugs are legal, coming up to a drug dealer and be like, give me drugs and be like, <laughs> like, just any drugs? Like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, nobody does that. You, you know, you want to mellow out. You want some weed or something. Fine. There's types of weed, but there's drugs that are not weed and then it won't lead anywhere. Like, you got to know what you're in here for. You're in here to get muscle. You're in here to get results. You're in here to look a certain way. And that's why sometimes the more hardcore, the more heavy, the more disruptive, the more painful, the more technically demanding exercises are what's served up to feed you that, that dinner of results. And if that's not the dinner you want, you know, why you pay me $110 an hour? That's right. <laughs> I've literally given some version of that talk to people and they're like, hey, respect. Thank you so much. I've totally, and if I ever bitch, and I say this all, all the time, if I ever try to bitch out again, just remind me why I'm here. Clients <laughs> literally say that because one of yeah, your jobs as a personal trainer is to, you know, their only job technically is to show up with two fucking open eyes and even one open eye is a good start. Then your job as a personal trainer is to take them the rest of the way, which often includes clarifying the reason that they're there. Because look, after three sets of leg extensions to close to failure, I'm in so much pain. I forgot why I was there. I don't want to know why I was there. It's up to the personal trainer to remind me. And the answer isn't always let the clients do BOSU ball squats. A lot of times it's deep hack squats until you're almost throwing up. But then in uh, six months, you're at the beach and all of your friends from work are like, holy shit, Janice, what the fuck? And you're like, I can fight crime now, motherfuckers. And you know. That's how it is. I, there, there's, there's something that you hit on. It will, it'll probably feel like a hard transition, but you talked about drugs and I'm in California and I live about Woo! 
45 minutes from the Emerald Triangle. I live in Sonoma County, which outside of Humboldt County is probably where the most weed is grown in all of California. And I really enjoy cannabis. I don't drink alcohol, but I enjoy cannabis. And I know a lot of lifters who do as well. And one of the more prevalent questions I'm asked about cannabis, more specifically THC, uh, but also things like CBD is like, what are, if, if we know, if, if you don't know, uh, you don't have to dive in, but I think you do know, or I'd guess, you know, what's the oh, interplay dear, yeah. between THC and muscle hypertrophy and cannabis consumption and muscle hypertrophy? Are they competitive? Because if you go on T nation, like 30 years ago, weed gives you bitch tits. And I, you know, never really recovered from that fear and i don't know if right. it's still warranted yeah, so the whole weed estrogen thing like thc has teeny tiny transient effects on various hormones and by the way estrogen is anabolic this that's whole, right people like, trying to get to stop shitting yeah. on estrogen you guys just because 100%. testosterone is good doesn't mean estrogen's bad that's a very good way to put it and you know it's like uh getting getting estrogenic side effects that are notable on weed it's like trying to get them from soy products. You're like, I'm sorry, I have to eat how many of these things? It's an inordinate number. So uh, it's not something that is realistically concerned. The only realistic concern that I'm aware of, and there's not tons of literature on this, is that THC, especially at peak high, can disrupt with the deepest kinds of sleep. <laughs> so weed sleep is sometimes like, I slept, I dreamt, I don't know what about, I was kind of restless, it's kind of tossing and turning. At some points I was probably still awake and just high as fuck. At some <laughs> points I was barely in a dream, you know, like yeah. it's kind of the same thing at some point. So it, what I would recommend is people very seriously involved in muscle growth. Um, if you do weed, just don't do it before you go to sleep or within several hours. If you're eating mm -hmm. edibles, don't do them within three or four hours before you go to sleep. Generally, if you're doing smokables before two or three hours they, and, and it's, most people like to do weed in, in the you know evenings and weekends. So what I would say is like, start a little earlier and then be done a little earlier. And then you'll have really high quality sleep and everything kind of comes together. And you'll know again, that earlier, the mention of sleep, you'll wake up after like having just smoked a shitload of weed and then go to sleep, you'll wake up and you'll still be groggy and tired. You're like, yeah, you get a two hour nap and you feel like Superman you're like, oh, okay. I just didn't get enough high quality sleep. And that really is what it is. If, if but you, if you wake solve up, that problem, you're good. If you wake up after smoking weed and you feel like, am I still high? You smoke too close to when you're going to go to bed. I, I've Absolutely. a lot of people tell me I smoked and I was high when I woke up. I was like, no, you smoked <laughs> while you were still in bed or had an edible while you were in bed and it kicked in at fucking three in the morning and you got no REM sleep. Like, you know, like yeah. even like I, you, you, you have to be honest with yourself about this stuff, but like, I think it's probably um, unfair to compare it to alcohol, but like these two things get kind of let's uh, they get thrown into the arena often. Like, okay, which of these two vexes can I consume? And I see it a lot out here because I live in wine country. Like, this is where the the women wear the hats and drink the wine. And you know what kind of hats I'm talking about? I'm talking about the hats that are massively oversized with the romper it's a look and like women come here from all around the world to drink the wine and enjoy and so i get asked all the time like okay i i, I know that like body composition is my goal like it alcohol or weed which one's worse like i can i can't do without one like i need to pick like which of those two is more deleterious to body composition to get a psychotherapist if you can't do without any drugs <laughs> you I, have a dependency doing, issue cheryl <laughs> first rule of doing drugs is if you don't have any drugs around you're still okay <laughs> number one rule 
but okay, so that aside, uh, by at least an order of magnitude, weed is way less deleterious than alcohol for a number of reasons. One, it, it's actually interference with sleep is minimum compared to alcohol. Alcohol ruin it of sleep, no problem. Secondly, the direct chemical and pharmacological effects on muscle growth are of weed as yet unestablished and probably moot. Uh, with alcohol profound and, and quite impressive and not great. Another thing is alcohol has an actual toxicity to your body. THC, not in any straightforward way. Like in order to have toxicity to THC, you need to like mistake 10 migs for a hundred migs and eat the whole chocolate bar of edibles instead of a few pieces. And then you're just not going to have a fun time for a few days, but still nothing we can really describe. Like if you go to the hospital, they don't pump the THC out of you. They're just like, Hey, here's the ice chips. Just here's a TV and let us know if you're okay in the next six hours. Right. There's nothing to do for you. Um, another thing is alcohol is calories. And it's and, remarkable and to me, the number of people who honestly have no idea that alcohol contains calories whatsoever. Yes. And, and often <laughs> it's paired in, yeah, it's, that's crazy. And then with wine, not only do you get the alcohol calories, but you get the sugar calories. So much sugar. That. And you know, you can put shit, you know what I'm saying? These white women out there put down a lot of wine. This Some is like basically the, like these, these glute four out here are working <laughs> fucking overtime with this, with this it, wine sugar. Yeah. It was like, like aliens draw the anatomy of a white woman. They're like, it, it uses <laughs> alcohol in wine to power its talking. You're like, that's absolutely correct. It's so, pretty much it. It's pretty much it. But then the case is like, okay, let's say you have your sort of moderating alcohol intake or you've planned it for your macros. The next question between weed and alcohol is which one is going to be making me, or if the person isn't doing the analysis, if the trainer is doing the analysis, which is going to make my client more likely to just have the fuck it all attitude and just be like, mm -hmm. all right, as soon as I get home from this stupid wine tour, I, which I love and I love all my friends, I'm going to open up Oreos and I'm just going to start eating them. I don't give a fuck. Like I'm just going to eat until I don't know why my mouth isn't moving anymore. Now, a lot of people will say like, yeah, man, munchies, bro. And that's totally a thing. It's but a thing. We can be more specific. You're more specific. First of all, and this doesn't get repeated enough. It's totally a thing with alcohol. It After is three or four drinks, I'm going to go to Taco Bell. Thank you. I, where I, am. I grew up like, or I didn't grow up, but I've been living for the last nine years directly next to the school that I did my undergraduate work at. And the Taco wow. Bell is fucking empty all day long. Maybe. But at 10 p.m., the line is out the door and around the block from Thursday to Sunday yeah. night because people yeah. don't go out for Taco Bell until they've started drinking. It, you could almost say it's not a food you would ever eat with your sober, rational mind attached. I'm totally kidding. I got to shit on Taco Bell. The Taco Bell shit on enough of us. Huh? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, no, so, exactly. <laughs> it's just revenge shit. So, <laughs> so that, you know, people make terrible choices when they're drunk, arguably worse. And then there's a thing with marijuana is if you're saying, okay, I get it that pot doesn't really, like, especially if I go to sleep on time and I don't use edibles right before I go to sleep, I'm going to have really essentially no impact on my physique so I can be like, you know, just THC to the moon hanging out with my friends, uh, you know, during a nice Saturday afternoon. But like, what if I get the munchies? Uh, what if this and that? There's a few things I can say on that. Unless you just rocket ship your way into fucking Mars. And then if you're that high, you usually don't even get the munchies because you're, you know, have you ever been too high? I don't mean the pride, but yes. you been too high to get the munchies. You're like, people like food. You're like, what the fuck is food? I'm trying to see my own hand in front of my face. Yeah. Like, so that's not really a problem. So generally when you get the munchies, you're sort of with it still. Oh, definitely. And, mm -hmm, and a lot of times you're with it enough to be like, wait a minute. Like I have a diet to stick to. 
and I can just eat my foods. And here's another really good benefit about weed. These are kind of like weed hacks. Can you tell I fucking use edibles? I'm very, very, <laughs> I, I planned this all out. So, uh, yeah, well, it's legal in Michigan, so I can totally. We weren't that. headed this way. It wasn't on my docket at all, but it ha- it, it, it's nice. It's organic. No pun intended. Feel free to cut me off. Right? Yeah, that's true. So another thing is, um, yes, junk food tastes amazing when you're high. However, if you really have true munchies, bro, everything tastes fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm like eating broccoli chips and I'm like, oh my God, the crunchiness. It's crazy. It's a full effect. So if you just put some meals in your fridge, and because there's another thing, you're disabled when you're high. You're not going to go on fucking, what's that shit called? Uber Eats and try to work a fucking app when you're fucked that. It just shit is in your fridge. You take it, you put it in your microwave, you hit the number two, it goes for two minutes, you take it out. If you just allot your meals like that, you're five steps ahead already. You could just eat what you're supposed to eat. The only thing you tell yourself is when you reach for a bag of chips that your friends have, you go, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And that's a thing. Like I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. I I do edibles when I'm dieting pretty hard towards the end of a super hard diet. It's just too much hunger. I don't even bother with it. Mm -hmm. But like when I diet pretty hard, I still do edibles and I'm totally fine because I'm like, I'm just going to eat my chicken sausages and they taste great. And one more little tiny hack, two more tiny hacks. I like this. Great. One. Okay. Two more tiny hacks. One is you can delay when you eat on weed because there's so much to do when you're just fucking high. Like you mm-hmm. take an edible for the next three hours, you're rocket shipping to the moon. You don't have to be eating because everything is so engaging and unbelievable. And you're talking a million miles an hour to your friends, or you feel like you are, and you really just said one thing and everyone's laughing at you. That's all stuff that you just don't have to be eating. So you can delay, like if you really try not to go over your macros, like taking it out of bowl and then sitting down to a dinner immediately is probably like the dumb thing. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like give it two or three hours. And then when you're stoned later, you can eat some food. So that's a big deal. And here's one more little tiny hack. It, it's not true hunger when you're on weed. It's more of an affective drive to experience sensory pleasure. Mm-hmm. One of which is through food. You can accomplish much of the same with like really tasty caffeine-free diet beverages. Bro, I got the hookup. You ready? Diet orange soda mm. when you're high is like nectar of the fucking gods, the bubbles, the mm. orange, the mouthfeel. You're like, oh, like I don't need you food if I take ca- a gulp of this. It's incredible. You had caffeine-free diet Dr. Pepper. Diet Dr. Pepper of all the diet sodas is my favorite because for some reason that that like palatable artificial sweetener taste works with the other 23 flavors. Like I've always said, and people think I'm weird. I think diet is better than regular because the diet has this little bit of a burn on the back end of it, but diet fucking Dr. Pepper has caffeine. But you found one the other day that I saw that had no caffeine and I've never fucking seen it anywhere. I barely see it anywhere. It's like a unicorn. You just shoot it on site, put it in a museum as soon as you get the chance. But you're right with the diet soda. I probably, I will go for those. And that's a good, that is a good hack. Like if you know you're going to have the the predisposition to want to grab things, just keep the right things around and and in front of you. And you'll probably just grab and enjoy whatever the fuck it was, even if it's not enjoyable. 100% protein bars and fruit. Fruit when you're high tastes. Oh yeah, baby. Fucking good. And protein bars normally taste like blarg. But when you're high as fuck, you're like, the chocolate, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's right chocolate. Like, you can enjoy tasty foods when you're high, if you have a lot of that. But if like, you know, you're trying to chase the body comp goals and you're in a fat loss phase, like the client I have right now in my head is like Sandra, female client. She's 36 years old. She's 130 pounds. And she's like, I want to go on this weekend with my friends. It's fucking amazing, but I don't want to turn to a fat pig because my cut is going really well. and I just don't want to backtrack. 
if you give her all these strategies, she can use them and not just like find herself at the bottom of the fifth can of Pringles. That's which right. is, you know, Pringles are great, but they have a price. They do. Just like a quick little circle the wagons here before we're done, because I love that. And that was like a nice little halftime show on this. Um, <laughs> but like what's with, with shifting gears to the nutritional component of muscle growth, there is one question that I get probably more so than any other. And I think that this has been more popular from the female following that I have for obvious reasons. But, you know, I think many women are intimidated at the notion of gaining too much body fat while working to build muscle. Um, And so they attempt to build muscle while eating at maintenance, or they try to, I suppose, find a way to build muscle while eating in a deficit. And for some populations, you are going to build muscle no matter what. But at what point is a natural lifter shooting themselves in the foot, trying to build muscle in a deficit or at maintenance? At what point do you just have to commit? Yeah. I've got another great sort of, uh, <laughs> it's barely an answer because, um, uh, geez, it's kind of like a self, self-defining thing. At the point at which when you're trying to do that shit, it doesn't seem to work anymore. That works. So like, <laughs> let's say you've done three fat loss phases and three maintenance phases between them as a client. It's been a year and a half. And every time you grow muscle, you grow it on maintenance, you get stronger, you more rippling everything, and you even grow it on a, on a deficit. But the fourth time you go in a deficit, you actually get a tiny little bit weaker on your exercises and your physique looks a tiny bit flatter. And you're like, fuck, what am I doing wrong? And then you look at the literature of what growing muscle on deficit is like. And half the studies are like, you know, what you should really do is get into a surplus. And you're like, God damn it. I knew they were going to say that shit. So when you can't grow muscle anymore in a noticeable way, because like some women will have a a goal of being like, look, I notably want fucking bigger hamstrings. I think it's going to look amazing. I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. And I don't give a mm. fuck anymore about what happens. I want big hands. And if they want to avoid the sociological and sort of internal mm, pain of having to gain some fat, then yeah, fuck it. Like you may be able to get them big ass hams in maintenance and deficit because it's possible for a while. But we know in sport physiology that the most profound muscle growth occurs in a small surplus, at least mm-hmm. gaining weight. Almost always that requires a little bit of fat gain in addition to muscle gain. And here's the thing. The most beneficiary person of that is the person who is drug-free and female, which I assume the vast majority of listeners to this podcast. Look, like if you're a dude, you're jacked up on tons of steroids. You can do all kinds of shit. You can grow tons of muscle in a deficit. And then what? Like, you know, you're a dude on steroids. So that's not you. If you're a female and you are drug-free, you need all the help you can get. And when you can no longer gain the requisite muscle that you want in a situation of a deficit or maintenance, then it's probably a good idea to say, okay, I'm going to get into a surplus, but what is it that I need to do to gain some muscle? Because it's very easy to think surplus, cookies, the cookie monster, my ex-boyfriend leaving me because I'm too fat and you're back in this fucking thing where you're like, okay, I'm just going to gain like pregnancy weight. Mm-hmm. But that's just not how it works. Let me put this into perspective. A very highly effective muscle gain plan for a female is to do 12 weeks of muscle gain at half a pound gained per week, mm-hmm. which means you gain six pounds. Half of that, let's say, is muscle. That means you gain three pounds of fat. What kind of psychotic asshole friend is going to fucking give a shit about three pounds of fat on your body? 
What mm-hmm. the fuck? And if you care about that, you need to get some woosah time with your inner child and work that shit the fuck out. Real talk, ladies. I'm tired of the shit. I swear to God, I used to rag on my female clients all the time and give them the realest talk of their lives in fitness. Of course, there's many more real talks to give, which I'm not yeah. qualified to. Um, but it's like this. I, you know, I, I've literally had 30-something-year-old women, 20-something-year-old women be like, oh, I don't really want to put on fat. I'd be like, hey, what's the... What's that one issue of teen magazine that came out recently? They're like, I don't read teen magazine. Like, Bullshit. Bitch, you're acting like you're 12. Like, oh, no, I'm going to get a little fat. Are you not a warrior goddess? Are you not a princess? Are you not an adult female of fucking responsibilities? And oftentimes children, they're like, well, yes. So can you take 12 weeks out of your life and put on three total pounds of fat? Yes, you fucking can. You did that on Porto Vallara six months ago anyway, and it took you fucking four days. They're like, right, okay. You know what I'm saying? So once you put it in like that, they're like, listen, also, the number of weeks it takes to take three pounds of fat off your body is at most three weeks. Three fucking weeks later, you get to eat all of the muscle and none of the fat. And when you sell it like that, and and another real quick, you got to tell them, look, you will gain some fat and yeah, your jeans will fit a little tighter. And yeah, that top you're going to be spilling out of a little bit more, but like, you know what I'm saying? Girl, just go out a little less towards the end of that shit. Like real life. Look, look, I would love for women to like, I'm a, I'm a, uh, mildly on topic. I'm a thickness fiend. Google my wife. You feel me? I love that shit, but yeah, I can totally understand women just don't want to be thick and that's totally fine. You do you girl, but you just have to understand that like some small ass short-term trade-offs and maybe you wear some some fucking sweatshirts for a while and then you peel that shit off you're going to be a fucking stud whereas mm-hmm. the alternative is the following you never have a little bit of a thicker phase and three fucking pounds it hurts my face to say thicker at three pounds a girl be like, oh i gained three pounds get out of here nobody noticed that shit that you gain three pounds you're unwilling to do that then five years later you could have all the muscle that you wanted and be like a shapely goddess and you're like oh my god i fucking did it i can't believe it i'm an unreal shape and now i'm the, the girl in the best shape of all my friends or if you say, well, I only gain muscle and deficit only to maintenance, you could be damn near that same bitch at the end of five years. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, Sandy, you, you lift weights. You have a trainer, right? I'm like, I can't believe this bitch asked me if I lift weights. I've been lifting weights for five years. You, you couldn't tell. And they're like, mm, not really. How come? Because you still weigh 115 pounds. You're, mm-hmm. you're skinny. People think you're Kate Moss. If you weigh 125 by then and you got some decent muscle on you because you did the adult thing and gained a little bit of weight, a tiny little bit out of your comfort zone, you didn't turn it on my 600 pound life candidate the next fucking day, then you'll get all those benefits. So it's really about being an adult at the end of the day. It's about being yeah. an adult and doing painful shit to get the good stuff at the end. I, it's, it's, it's true. It's going it, to look, if you aren't willing to gain the three pounds of body fat here, I can almost guarantee you'll gain it at some point. When, when you don't you're want experiencing to experiencing the wretched, horrible impact of sarcopenia that comes from having built no fucking muscle your entire life. Oh, like you can't build muscle while simultaneously trying to eat like it's 1985 Vogue magazine. I love it, Mike. Yes. Where can they find you, dude? Just YouTube, Renaissance periodization on YouTube. Don't turn it on when your children aren't around. Yeah. Or children are around. So not for children it's not for adults it's for nobody there you go that's perfect mike man thanks so much for coming on i really appreciate it thanks for having me